This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. This episode is brought to you in part by JDW Sheet Music. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber music pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, please visit jdwsheetmusic.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Lead. It's episode nine. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jackie. How are you? Well, I'm awesome because this time next week I'll be hanging out with you. I'm so excited. I can't even breathe. <laughs> so for the listeners, we um, Glee and Ice Trio, along with our clarinet bud, Corey, core, core. are going on a tour around... Um, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, kind of this uh, area along the Mississippi where I'm at, and uh, visiting some schools and playing at a CMS conference and whatnot, so it's going to be a ton of fun. I can't wait to hang out. I know, and I can't wait to show you my new tattoo. What? I got a tattoo. What of? Can we say on the podcast? Yes. Okay. (laughs) It is an oboe, and it is on my neck. Your neck? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> April Fool's. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, I cannot believe you just did that to me. Oh. <laughs> I've been planning this for a week. Hook, line, finger. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe you just did that to me. Okay. I hope you all got a good laugh at my expense. Oh, that was worth it. Oh, my God. Well, and we're not recording on April 1st, so I... You got me. You got me. Love you, Jackie. That is amazing. Okay. Okay, so... Um, last week I recorded some excerpts. Sorry, I'm still crying from the (laughs) (laughs) So last week I recorded some excerpts and, um, I ended up with a blooper that I shared with you, Jackie, and our dear friend Laura. And From that, we thought it would be a really good idea to actually share it on the podcast because it's 
really funny. At the beginning, you'll hear me talking, my wife talking, and my cat yelling. And then (laughs) the blooper happens, and then my favorite part is at the end where you'll hear my wife cackling. That's awesome. Let's check it out. I can do this. I'm a professional. Water strikes again. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know that excerpt, it's the second movement of the Ravel Piano Concerto in G. There's a big, gorgeous English horn solo. And right at the peak of that phrase is where I got the water. (laughs) Well, I Um, love that. I loved hearing your blooper. And uh, Laura actually kind of brought up the idea that we should... Uh, not only share it, but make this a reoccurring segment on the podcast, sharing our our bloopers and blunders. So I think next episode I'm going to go through, I seem to remember a pretty big doozy from one of my master's recitals, <laughs> dress rehearsals. Um, and so if you guys have any uh, bloopers or blunders as you're in the practice room recording yourself, uh, we would love to hear them. We can share them anonymously, of course. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so this is going to be a new thing we're doing on the podcast. Uh, Laura said uh, this really nice I, I took it as a big compliment. She said, Double Reed Dish is a pioneer in norma- normalizing all the stuff that we've been brainwashed to hide. So in that spirit, we want to <laughs> scars and all, I think. Uh, <laughs> we laugh because we can't cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing we wanted to talk about on today's episode was aha moments. So what's your aha moment, Galit? Well, I've had a few, but the one I can remember the most clearly was one that I had in my doctorate, actually. And once I had it, I sort of was thinking, why didn't, why didn't I think of this before? Because it seems so simple. But in the end, I was, you know, practicing for my lesson, and then I would go into my lesson, and I would have a great lesson, and then I would come home, and I would practice, and I would think, I would get so frustrated because I couldn't recreate what was happening in the lesson, Um, 
and uh, until, you know, and this was like rinse, repeat for ever. And so um, finally one day I'm sitting in my tiny studio apartment practicing and, of course, getting frustrated again. And then I said, you know what? I'm just going to play it like I want to play it. And then I did that and I liked it. And I was just like, whoa, that actually sounded a lot closer to what Dr. Olson was trying to get me to do Mm -hmm. in my lesson than what I've been trying to force to happen. So maybe I should just play it so that I think it sounds good. And it was kind of like an aha moment in terms of the first time I ever trusted my own musical instincts. Mm -hmm. And it's been kind of a life changer because instead of just like doing it for, you know, external punishment or reward, I started practicing for, you know, for me mm-hmm. and what, what I like to hear. And uh, it's a much more fun and engaging way to make music. And I got a lot better, a lot faster than just trying to please my teacher because, you know, if you're trying to recreate something for your lesson, it's really, I think Joyce DiDonato said something about that in the master class. I mean, you can't, you can't recreate the result, but you can recreate the process or something like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, so I started doing that and it was just so much more musical and rewarding and I would go into my lessons and, you know, there would be a huge difference in how I would perform and I just got so much better and I started listening to myself different, differently and more positively, constructively, that kind of thing. So that was a really big one for me and I try to, I try to communicate that to my students too. It's not just about me and what I think, it's about what you think too and how you hear it and you need to, you know, come up with an interpretation that is authentic because what's authentic to me may not be authentic to you. And we do have to adhere to what the composer wants. Of course, that's the number one thing, but there's a little wiggle room there. And I think it's important that we're listening to ourselves and, you know, creating something that feels natural as we're performing it. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that idea of um, performing in a lesson rather than learning is something that a lot of us have to deal with and work on growing out of. It was definitely something that I remember working on actually in my doctorate as well, where I remember getting frustrated with um, making a mistake in a lesson and Ben was kind of like, okay, what's your problem? And I said, I don't want you to think I'm unprepared. Like, I wasn't bothered Mm -hmm. by the mistake. I was bothered that he would think that I wasn't prepared for the lesson. And he was just like, your head's in the wrong place. You need to be concerned with learning Mm. and with getting better. And the process, like you said, the process of how I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing instead of here I am performing for my teacher. I hope it's, you know, a, a good performance. Light bulb on. That's amazing. Yeah. What was your aha moment? My big aha moment came uh, during my undergraduate degree. Um, and the the path to my aha moment was well laid in high school um, where I was, um, you know, involved in my high school band music program. And it was very much just a social thing for me. I didn't 
take private lessons. I didn't concern myself with tone quality or intonation or, or really excellent musicianship at all. I just kind of... No biggie. <laughs> no biggie. Yeah, I just, you know, I showed up, I took my bassoon out of my case, played in the band, and then it went back in the case until the next band rehearsal. Um, and the thing is, you know, in a lot of high school programs, that's enough. It's okay for a band to just be an activity. But once you get to college and you're a music major and you're training to be a professional, that is definitely not the case anymore. And uh, it took me a while to reacclimate to that level of expectations and um, whatnot. So going into my regional undergraduate uh, institution, I was one of the only bassoons. So I was given a scholarship to play in the band, but then also the orchestra. And I hadn't played in an orchestra before. And as we know, orchestra parts for bassoon are a little bit different than orchestra parts, or than bassoon parts in band, uh, where it's a lot more exposed. Oftentimes, you know, the playing can be more rangy, that type of thing. And we were playing Mozart Requiem, Brahms Tragic Overture, you know, standard repertoire for an undergraduate symphony orchestra. And I hadn't changed my behavior. And so I was sitting in an orchestra, not being able to read tenor clef, not being able to play above and up above the staff, um, and really trying to fake my way and fly under the radar, which you can't do playing bassoon in orchestra. You just can't do it. No, everything's a solo. Everything. And um, so we were on the quarter system <laughs> there. And we get our grades for the first quarter, and I had failed orchestra. Oh, Lord. Which was not good, right? And it put my scholarship at jeopardy and my academic progress at jeopardy, and so I was kind of freaking out. And so I went to the orchestra director, and I said, Maestro, you know, I don't understand this grade. What's, what's the deal? And he said, it's really quite simple. You can't play the parts. You can't read the clefs and you have no business majoring in music or playing the bassoon. Ouch. And, yeah, it was it was really hurtful, you know, and for the record, I'm not endorsing that way of speaking to students or, or that method of teaching, uh, but for me and who I was at the time, it was what I needed to hear, and it was this big aha moment of, he's right. I can't play these parts, and I can't read this clef, and I'm either going to learn how to do that or change my major, essentially, because I, mm -hmm. I realized I was at this impasse where I had to step up and start doing the work or this degree was not going to happen. Um, and it also irked me <laughs> that, he, you know, that he's spoken <laughs> to me this way, true or not. And so I said, next quarter, I'm going to make that guy give me an A. And so I started practicing, like, purely out of spite initially, um, three, four, five hours a day. And lo and behold, you know, when you take an instrument that you've been pretty ambivalent about and start dedicating substantial amounts of time daily to it, you get a lot better a lot faster. And Eureka! Eureka! <laughs> yes, people start responding to you differently and um, it, you start to like what, what you hear and the music you're making and then it, you know, was like a downhill cart 
with in terms of momentum and the bassoon started to become really important to me and performance major and all this type of stuff it took on a life of its own but uh yeah that conversation was my aha moment where the music went from being a hobby to a profession and I'm really grateful for that level of honesty that that teacher spoke to me though I might have preferred it in a little bit more gentler package but you know sometimes aha moments don't come in the most gentle of packages I guess and good for you for having the strength to, you know, take that comment and turn it into something positive. Because I probably wouldn't have, if I were a freshman in college and somebody said that to me, I, I'm not sure that I would have taken it so gracefully and turned it into such um, positive action. So good for you. So my shout-out this week is actually um, a personal shout-out to my bestie, Joanna, who has included me on a peer pressure group text about running because I was complaining about low energy levels and how I had wanted to start running at the beginning of the year, but, of course, life always gets in the way. So she said, oh, well, I'll just put you in on this group text with me and my sister. We run approximately one mile a day, and then we take um, photos of our cute dogs that we run with, and uh, and then uh, it's proof. And then, you know, we put, we text each other once a day with the distance that we run. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you to that because it really has been forcing me to run more. I'm not, I'm still not doing it super consistently. I was really consistent over spring break. I ran almost every day over spring break and I felt great. And then we got back to school, obviously, and I haven't been able to be as consistent, but I do feel guilty when I don't do it. So I feel like that's step one. So thank you, Joanna. Shout out to friends who will look out for you. (laughs) What's your shout out, Jackie? My shout out is Fagotina who is a um, kind of comic character, I guess we could say, a reoccurring sketch character by bassoonist Victoria Paz, who is originally from Spain, but she's currently in the second year of her master's degree at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Um, And she's also in the Genovia Quintet and is just this awesome bassoonist. Wow. Um, so she has this um, character, Fagatina, who is the subject of various sketches that she does. And so I reached out to her and kind of asked about the inspiration. And she said, I created Fagatina just before Christmas. I basically get inspiration from the daily struggles that I have to deal with being a bassoonist. I feel like there are many, many fun facts about playing the bassoon that not many people know about, and I like to share them by using sketches just to bring a smile to other bassoonists out there so we can all feel similar with the different issues bassoonists find in their lives. I really believe that there exists an inner fagatina inside every bassoonist in the world, especially in girls. So uh, very much in the spirit of Double Read Dish and I love looking over this page. I look forward to whenever a new Fagatina is released. Um, The one, I mean, I think our listeners will enjoy all of them, but the one that spoke to me on a spiritual level uh, is the one where Fagatina deals with double reed face and being photographed 
<laughs> and I think that will speak to oboists as well. I might even venture to say that oboe phase is a little worse than bassoon phase. <laughs> I'm not going to push you on that. I think it's probably true. <laughs> um, but, you know, she did a lot of stuff, how to carry a bunch of stuff, you know, the quest for the perfect read, the lack of social life, just all these things that we go through Fagatina goes through as well. So um, you can find all these sketches on Facebook. You can just search Fagatina. Um, and thank you to Victoria for this awesome, adorable resource. Um, oh, another one I love is she did one with Belle and the Contrabassoon for Beauty and the Beast, the shout-out to the Ravel Mother Goose Suite, which I thought Aww. was adorable. I loved That's it. That's wonderful. So shout-out, Victoria. Shout-out, Fagatina. The Southern Oboe Intensive provides a distinctive opportunity for oboists to spend five days immersed in world-class instruction. The Intensive draws students from middle school through college graduates from throughout the United States. During the Intensive, students at all levels are coached by James Sullivan of the Alabama Symphony, Russ DeLuna of the San Francisco Symphony, and Phil Ross of the St. Louis Symphony. Not only are these gentlemen exceptional oboists, but each brings extraordinary and unique experience and perspective to share with the participants. An additional one-of-a-kind benefit of the intensive is a recital performed by Mr. Sullivan, Mr. DeLuna, and Mr. Ross. Students will be instantly inspired by the level of artistry, collegialism, and joy evoked when these three superb musicians collaborate. Visit southernoboeintensive.com for more information and to register. Complete registration before May 1st and receive a free read specially made by Russ, James, or Phil, plus a six-read oboe read case. That's southernoboeintensive.com. Right out of the box, gender read knives are the sharpest read knives on the market. Each original gender read knife is handcrafted using traditional Asian knife making techniques. Japanese steel is first forged into shape, hollow ground, and then hardened to Rockwell 5860, making the edge on the blade very strong yet durable. Each blade is then polished and hand sharpened to perfection using shaped in professional sharpening stones up to 8000 grit. Genda even personalizes your reed knife before sending it. You can choose a right-handed, left-handed, or straight burr from their drop-down menu and easy-to-use website. Genda has also announced new products for April of 2017, including the Genda Reed Tool Roll, a high-quality leather tool storage roll, including three large and three small sleeves, and one covered pouch to store your reed-making knives and tools. They also offer Genda Leather Reed Knife Sheaths and a Genda Cutting Block. Visit GendaIndustries.com today. So if Laura Medisky is right and Double Reed Dish is a pioneer in normalizing everything that we've been told as musicians we're supposed to hide, Billy Short is perhaps our mascot and inspiration in that endeavor. Um, this interview was so awesome, and I especially appreciated how open and transparent he is in talking about his journey and in all the things that come along with doing this 
job as principal bassoon in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Um, we specifically talk about, and we'll make sure to link to in the episode, Billy's blog, where he talks about and explores a lot of different aspects of musicianship, including a lot of the mental and emotional stuff that we talk about so much on the podcast. Billy, you're a big fan of Billy's blog, I know. Yeah, 100%. I actually, um, last year I taught a class called Success for Music Majors, and I used a couple of his blog posts in my class um, to talk about, you know, what happens when you don't win an audition, um, and he has a really cool post on tuning, and uh, yeah, he he doesn't shy away from tough topics about failure, which is really important because, you know, especially coming up as a student, you're mostly around people who have had a lot of success. And that success is hard won, but you don't see that part. You only see the, oh, this person has a great job. I want to be just like them. Um, but the process getting there can be really, really tough, as I'm sure many of our listeners are experiencing. And Billy Short you know, he talks about all this stuff. He, so I, I just love this interview. I found it food for the soul. Hallelujah. Let's get to it. Billy Short, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. So last month, we had our most requested oboist as a guest on the podcast, who is Nancy Ambrose King. And this episode, we get to bring you our most requested bassoon guest, Billy Short, who is the principal bassoon of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Billy, would you please introduce yourself to our, your, to our listeners and um, tell us a little bit about uh, your educational training journey and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, so I grew up uh, just outside of Austin, Texas. Uh, went to Round Rock High School, um, and I was I was really fortunate while I was in Austin to have a succession of really wonderful teachers and and band directors who were very supportive. Um, you know, I, I studied with uh, Bill Lewis from the Austin Symphony. I studied with Kristen Wolf Jensen from the University of Texas, who were both just phenomenal. Uh, and then after high school, I went to the Curtis Institute of Music, where I studied with Bernard Garfield and Danny Matsukawa. And I did my master's at Rice University with, with Ben Kamins. And uh, while I was at Rice, I also actually played in the, the Delaware Symphony. Um, so so I, I commuted up about once per month uh, to play with that really wonderful group of, of musicians. Uh, and then... Uh, shortly after I, I finished my master's, I was very fortunate to, to win the principal bassoon job at the Met, as you mentioned. Um, and so I'm in my fifth season there now. And uh, as of this year, I'm also on faculty at Juilliard at Manhattan School of Music and at Temple University. Can you talk to us about the process of auditioning for and winning a position at the Met, uh, specifically about your preparation as you were working toward your audition? Yeah, I mean, auditioning for an opera job has, has an interesting sort of evening out effect among the field of candidates, because you're talking about a list of repertoire that the, the vast majority of it people aren't familiar with. Um, so I decided early on that you know, this was a job that I that I really, really wanted to go after. 
Um, and I will never forget, actually, a seminal moment in my preparation was something that, that Ben came and said to me. I, I had just finished my second master's recital, and, and I sat down in my, in my next lesson, and he said to me, you know, Billy, we're going to hit these opera excerpts really hard because not only could you win this audition, but you could do this job. Um, and that was an incredible motivator for me because, you know, when, when you sit down in the practice room, we all have a sort of good enough point where something is good enough, okay, it's time to move on to the next mm, point. Uh -huh. and, and hearing that encouragement from someone whose opinion means so much to me, um, it sort of moved up that good enough point for me. It, 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 that was the impetus for me spending, you know, that extra half hour in the, in the practice room to, to get it that much better. Um, so, you know, with, with that sort of fire in my belly, obviously I practiced hard. I, I looked up the, the context, uh, both plot-wise and musically, for, for all of the, the opera excerpts. Um, but the other thing that I did differently for, for this audition, from previous auditions that I had taken, was I've always been really bad about playing for people. Because I never feel like I'm ready to put to put, you know, a, a semi-finished product in front of my colleagues. And then it's, you know, suddenly a week before and you haven't played for anyone and well, it's only a week away, so what's the use of doing it now? Mm -hmm. And and so I would just end up not doing that. Um, in in this in in preparing for this audition, though, I I knew that that was something that was too valuable for me to pass up, uh, both in terms of getting feedback and in just putting myself out there and playing in uncomfortable situations and getting used to, you know, playing these these unfamiliar excerpts all the way through on whatever read I happen to have on hand, and so. I, I made a conscious decision to start playing for people, frankly, well before I was ready. Um, you know, I would ask people if I could play for them and, and set up a specific date to do that right then so that I couldn't sort of weasel my way out of it. Uh, I told my studio mates at, at Rice, you know, if I'm in the studio working on reads, you can ask me to play any excerpt from the list on whatever read I happen to be holding in my hand at that moment which led to some incredibly embarrassing renditions of that. So, but, but, you know, gradually through, through falling flat on your face over and over and over and over, your general level of, of performance of these things goes up. And so that was, that was a really important part of my preparation. So I wonder if you could talk about that transition from being a person auditioning for this ensemble to being a person who is in the ensemble. You know, I, I think that probably preparing for this opportunity would be one thing. But then I imagine that moment when you walk into the first rehearsal and you are this person that you just spent all this time auditioning or proving that you can be, um, was the transition very organic as you kind of earned this opportunity or, or was it a whole new different world entirely? It was, it was really hard. Um, it, my, my first season was really, really difficult. You know, I, to be perfectly honest, I've never felt like a failure more often than in my first season at the Met because mm -hmm. 
I mean, literally overnight, I went from being a student, you know, I think a, a, a good student, but, but a student nonetheless, who sort of put these people who play in an orchestra like Met on a Pedestal to suddenly being colleagues with them. Uh, and not only co colleagues, but as a, as a principal, theoretically being, you know, one of the, the leaders in the orchestra. And I'm, I, I could not be more grateful for, for what a supportive and understanding group of people um, we have in the, in the Met Orchestra. I think largely because everyone remembers that, that terror at, at sitting in your, in your first bohème and thinking to yourself, I have no idea what's going on, and everyone else, you know, can play this in their sleep. You know, you're sort of sitting there white-knuckled the entire time. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think for me, you know, we could go through, you know, the, the long list of, of things that, that I, I learned and, and had to uh, figure out in, in my first season in particular, uh, on the job, but I think what it really boils down to was I I didn't fully respect my own musical opinion. You know, it, it my my in initial reaction to sitting in this orchestra was to to sort of try and stay in the background as much as possible to learn from my colleagues to match what they were doing and and I don't think that that's entirely bad approach to have you know that's it's it's a collaborative approach that I think is very important but at the same time I wasn't really putting myself out there and and I remember the moment when that finally changed, because this manifested itself in a, in a lot of different ways. It, I wasn't as assertive as I would have liked to have been. Um, my pitch wasn't as as confident as it could have been. I was second guessing myself a lot. And so we we had a performance of Unballo and Mascara, the the Verdi opera, and I just was getting more and more frustrated with my pitch. I I could not find you know, where it was, and I've always been one to sort of super intellectualize these things, like, you know, well, this is a sharp note for me, but I'm playing on a sort of flat reed, but I've got the major third, but it's with the clarinet, mm -hmm. and just sort of trying to, trying to figure it out rather than just trusting myself. And at a certain point in this performance, I said, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to play. I'm just going to play the way I think it should go, the way I hear it, and in that moment, the, the entire sound of the wind section changed. Uh, I mean, I didn't realize how much I had been holding back the, the sound of the entire wind section by not playing with assertiveness and with confidence. And that was that for me was a really defining moment. And that I mean, that must have been in my second season, I think. So it it was a long time before I felt you know, not like I owned the chair, but like I could even have any legitimate claim to sitting in that chair. Um, now's maybe a, a good time to bring up one of the things I, I really admire that you do, which is the blog on your website. 
um, in which you speak really openly about dealing with some very real issues like insecurity and the relationship between music and self-worth and perfectionism and failure. Um, and I think that's a thing that um, a lot of our listeners have even written in and said, wow, I, I thought I was the only one who experienced these things. And I think it's such a service that you do by putting yourself out there. Um, so I wonder if you can maybe expand on your experiences dealing um, with these mental and emotional musician struggles and also address why it was important to you to be transparent in having these experiences. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I, you know, I thank my lucky stars every day that, that I, I have the positions that I do, that, that I have the, the career that I do. Um, and I think that very often, for whatever reason, people in positions like mine um, are regarded as sort of invincible. They, they are amazing. They have always been amazing. They will always be amazing. They are perfect. They don't make mistakes. You know, that, that kind of idea. And when I first started my job, I, I, I had to confront on day one the fact that that's just not true. That you work your tail off for years and years and years with no promise of payoff. And then suddenly, you know, your, your number comes up you have achieved what, what many, I think, would consider the dream, but you are still the exact same musician that you were before before winning that job. And, and that's something that it's difficult to come to terms with as the person in that position, but I think it's really valuable for people who are not in that position to, to realize that, you know what, that person in that job they had to work for it. They have not always been perfect. They are not, not now perfect. They will never be perfect. Because I think that perception of perfection can be really discouraging. You know, if I'm, if I'm not perfect, how can I ever make it? I'll just never be good enough. Well, that's not true. You know, it, it, all it boils down to is how hard are you willing to work? Mm-hmm. How, how many disappointments are you willing to endure? You know, something that, um, thank you for your, for your kind words about my blog. I, I wish that I had more time to, to keep it updated. Um, but something that I always wanted to do, but I never quite worked up the courage, was to post my anti-bio. <gasps> That's because such a good idea. I, I, I promised myself that if I ever found myself in a, in a really good position, you know, one that might be regarded in this way, that I would write um, an anti-bio that lists every one of my failures. And, you know, I have it written down and I do share it with people, but I'm not sure I'm ready to put it out, you know, to the, to the entire internet. But, you know, it starts with uh, something to the effect of hailed by audition committees as forced and unmusical and not very good at all. The <laughs> soonest... <laughs> As soon as William Short has failed to advance in auditions for the Metropolitan Opera, the Baltimore Symphony, the St. Louis Symphony, the Jacksonville Symphony, uh, the Austin Symphony, I mean, just, just this laundry list of, of failures. And, and the, the point was, I, I really wanted to, to create 
something in, in my blog that showed that we're, we're all, we all exist on the same sort of continuum where we're just trying to get better. And, and whether, whether you're you know, a sixth grader sitting in beginning band or a principal bassoon of the Metropolitan Opera, that work still isn't done. There's, there's you know, a fantastic quote, I forget who it's by, that's, you know, uh, music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime isn't enough for music. Because it doesn't matter who you are, you just want to do better. And, and that's really what, what was important to me to, to get across. I know I'm supposed to ask a question, but that was so powerful. <laughs> oh my God, that was so good. I mean, that's everything. Because, you know, it's so hard to move from the person who fails all the time to the person who is supposed to be perfect all the time, overnight, you know? Uh, we, um, on social media, we asked our listeners to send in some questions that they would like us to ask for them, and we got some really good questions. So I'm going to start uh, with a question from Ritika, and she wants to know, how do you prepare yourself physically and mentally for a really long opera like Wagner's Ring Cycle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's something that a you you kind of get used to, kinda. I I remember in in my first season we played Otello at the beginning of the season, which remains to this day one of the most difficult parts I've ever played. And I remember it's it's a three hour opera, which in opera terms is is a pretty short night. Um, but after every performance, I was just exhausted. And then it came back in the spring. And I remember coming home after, after the first, um, after the first performance, uh, back of, of Otello. And I, I was like manic. I had so much energy. My then girlfriend, now wife just said, you know, you've got to chill. Because, because you do, you get used to it to a certain extent. At, at the same time, you know, something that, that uh, Ben Kamen said when I was a student at Music Academy has definitely rung true, which is that uh, Parsifal is the only thing he's ever played that, that had the same effect on him as jet lag, which I thought was hilarious until I played Parsifal and found out it takes about three and a half days to feel human after afterwards. Um. The, the, most, the most readily obvious thing that you need to do to prepare for an opera like that is to not overhydrate. Because a lot of these operas have two-hour-long acts, and you do not want to get in a situation where you have to run to the bathroom. Um, but, uh, but on a more serious note, <laughs> you know, I, I adjusted my reads to sit uh, more comfortably in the tenor register because that's where I have to sit for, for hours on end. Um, and so I, I want to work as little as possible to, to keep, to keep the pitch up in there. And, you know, you, you just, you, you try to take it easy before a show like that. Um, you know, you try not to, not to over practice. Uh, you try to, to 
mentally just keep yourself in a very relaxed place. You know, I'm, I'm also kind of weird, though, in that I, I like to be a little bit tired when I, when I start a performance because then I can't get as nervous. Uh, I can I can stay a little bit more relaxed. I I don't know if that's if that's an adequate answer to the to the question because at at a certain point you just kind of grit your teeth and 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 get through it. Um, and I will say that that the ring is super fun to play. You know, it is it is not a slog. It is really really fun. Well, kind of related, Jonas would like you to talk about the difference between playing bassoon in an opera orchestra versus a symphony orchestra, a philharmonic orchestra. In opera, there's just a tremendous amount of flexibility that's required. Um, you know, so often, you know, no two measures are exactly the same tempo or exactly the same dynamic. Um, which is not in any way to, to underplay how difficult, you know, my, my symphony playing colleagues, how difficult their jobs are. Um, but it took me quite some time to just learn fully how to listen and how to balance what are often conflicting um, signals that, that, that you're getting between what you see on the podium, what your colleagues are playing, what you're hearing, uh, from the singers on the stage and, and to learn how to balance that sensitivity with, again, the idea of playing assertively so that, you know, your voice is, is in the mix also. It's, it's very, very much like chamber music, uh, playing, playing an opera, because that awareness and that need for personality still is, is a balance that, um, is very important to strike, um, you know, you, you may be sitting there and noticing, wow, the singers are way far away. And so you have to play in an absolute subtone and noticing, okay, well, they're, they're getting pretty far behind, but, you know, this conductor is showing me, you know, that he wants the tempo to move forward. How exactly do I balance these things? Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that, that for me was, was the biggest challenge in terms of learning to play opera on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. So um, I love all of our listeners, but I have to say I love this listener the most because she is my wife. Um, Becky had a question <laughs> for you. Um, she wants to know about your practice routines. Um, when you practice, do you have a warm-up or fundamentals routine that you like? And how do you really, how do you, what do you think is essential to staying on top of your game? It's, it's a lot of fundamentals work. Uh, I, I do try every, every day that I practice, I at least do uh, Hertzberg scales. Um, and just to, to clarify, I don't consider those a warm-up. You know, that is really focused work that I, that I try and do in terms of evenness, evenness of resonance, technical fluency. Uh, that's, that's really important. Um, you know, I, I do obviously have to, have to stay on top of whatever operas I, I have coming up, you know, right now, Rosen Cavalier is on my stand, which I've never played before. And so that, that requires some, some serious woodshedding. Um, but it, it really has become necessary to, to 
a lot time efficiently because you know if if you have flying dutchman in the morning and rosen cavalier at night as we as we do later this season i guarantee you i'm not going to be practicing in between those two you know that is that is more than enough bassoon for for one day uh, and i don't know that i would make it through the the final scene of rosen cavalier if i if i spent a few hours practicing and so i i think it's really really important especially when one is a student to emphasize those really solid fundamentals just just really being able to to function on the instrument being able to get around the instrument because that has a direct influence on your ability to prepare later in life as a as a professional as i'm sure both of you have experienced for yourselves you don't have time necessarily to exhaustively practice every single note that's put in front of you so at a certain point you you have to be able to trust in your abilities as a player and the only way you're going to get to the point where where you can trust in those abilities is by doing that exhaustive work you know earlier in your career and then doing what's necessary to to maintain it so i mean for 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 me you know i don't i don't practice every single note that that i'm going to play in the orchestra i've i've had to learn to prioritize and to to very quickly recognize okay that that i can i can just play down that'll be fine that it looks tricky but really it just takes a little bit of of you know familiarizing sort of or that really is going to require some some wood shedding i i can't let that fall through the cracks and and there's something that that it felt really weird to do this when i first started my my job because you know i'd be sitting there and and thinking to myself okay such and such passage that'll be fine and then i would think to myself i'm sitting in the med orchestra what right do i have to just sort of dismissively <laughs> say oh that'll be fine but mm. but that kind of trust in yourself is is really important and really important to consciously cultivate i think because otherwise you'll just drive yourself crazy and and you'll never develop the confidence necessary to to really put yourself out there. Mhm. Well, it is a double read podcast, so we have to ask you about reads. Uh so Nicholas wants to know what shape and type of cane do you use for your read making and why? And we might view this as an opportunity for you to talk about your read making process and approach generally as well. Sure. So, uh I use the Hertzberg shape um which I just I like it because it's very symmetrical and it's very sort of middle of the road and it's it's designed to be flexible um so that depending on where you put the first wire and where you clip the tip you can use a wider or narrower part of the shape and so I I use a slightly narrower part of the shape than is typical um as far as cane sources I I always go back to to a quote from Mr. Garfield when when I was studying with him that I asked him that question and his response was by them all they all suck. <laughs> <laughs> so about about every 2 years I about a pound of every single cane supplier I can come up with and usually just mix them all together and and make whatever comes out cuz I figure by by the time I figure out if I like a particular batch of cane, you know, if I were to reorder the stuff 
you know, it might be completely different. Um, as far as my personal read-making process, uh, I guess the, the most important part is that I make a lot of reads, uh, both because I'm, I'm very picky and, and because my job kills reads rather quickly. Um, and so my, my goal that I do not always achieve, but my goal is to, to average two reads a day that I, that I clip. Now, most of those reads do not survive to a second day. So it's, it's not, it's not like I'm, I'm working on 16 reads in any, in any given day. You know, today I'll clip two reads and I have one sitting just to my left on my read desk that, that survived until now. Um, so I actually find that that's a fairly manageable um, uh, sort of pipeline to keep going. And I, uh, in, in working on reads, I subscribe to the sort of Hertzberg-Kamen's school of thought, uh, which is, in my read making, I make reads for intonation and response. Um, and I just want to take a moment to clarify that because that's a statement that can can cause um, a lot of misunderstanding. Because what people will often take away from that is, well, sound doesn't matter. That is not at all the case. I care deeply about sound. The problem is sound is subjective, whereas intonation and response are objective. So in in the in my thought process. Every read that I've ever had that had a sound I didn't like also had issues that could be quantified in terms of intonation and response. And by addressing those issues, the sound was improved. And this is, this is something that I really had to sort of put to the test when I first joined the orchestra. Because, yes, we're playing opera, and in opera, you know, the, the stereotypical approach to playing opera is you stay under the singers. You have to play ridiculously, incredibly softly all the time. And while that color, that dynamic, is absolutely essential, I was shocked by how much the orchestra played out when I first joined. Because we play in a 3,800-seat hall. It's, it's a big room, and it requires a big sound um, to, to really fill it up, to feel like you're, you're projecting. And so when I first joined the orchestra, my sound was just too thin, and that did not work. And so what I had to do was go back to what I knew, which was, really, is this read in tune? Did I overscrape it, so is it flat? Is it, uh, is it really responsive? Does it have the appropriate balance of sort of free-blowing versus resistance? Because if you want to attack, you know, a soft, 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 you know, tenor D on the, on the bassoon, you need some resistance to push against. It can't just you can't just blow and and you know have the note come barking out. And so by addressing those, I gradually and this took years got to the point where most of the time now I, I feel like my sound is acceptable for the space I'm playing in. Um, and I also want to add, you know, I, I'm sure that there are listeners who disagree with virtually every word I just said. And that is completely fine. I take no issue with that. I only, I only say this to clarify any misconceptions that might exist and to share a system that has worked for me. 
your job requires you to perform a lot and prepare a lot. And I wonder how you approach, uh, if there is such a thing, a work-life balance. It's something that I'm not very good at, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Um, so as far as the life aspect of the work-life balance, um, it has, it has helped me to be a workaholic that my wife lives in Sarasota, Florida. Um, however, she will be moving to New York this summer. And one thing that I'm really looking forward to is, is her insisting on, on a work-life balance. I mean, she really is not, not to you know, wax poetic or get cheesy, but she's sort of my rock. She, she knows when, when to tell me, okay, stop what you're doing. We need to go for a walk. Um, and I, I'm not sure what I would do without that voice of sanity. Um, you know, something that I do try to do in, in, ter uh, in terms of reads is I, I try to get as much of the sort of grunt work of read making out of the way during the summer when we, do, when we are not playing as possible. Um, and so this, this past summer I did all of my cane processing from, from, uh, from splitting the tube of cane through, um, making blanks, uh, over the summer so that as much as possible during the season, I can just clip reads and I don't have to, to worry about the rest. I also try to study all of the new operas that are coming up as much as possible over the summer. I think I got through all of them except for Rosen Cavalier, which I, which I took care of in, in February. Um, but that's, that's the stuff that's, that's, I think, really important for me to get out of the way before I'm in the insanity of the season because uh, it's very time-consuming to you know, sit down with a recording and a score and an opera part and listen to an opera or to, to sit down and you know, gouge and shape and profile and form 250 pieces of cane, something like that. Um, that's, that's basically the, the best I got, though, because to be perfectly honest, I am not good at a work-life balance, and it's something that I'm planning to get better at. <laughs> Um, one of my favorite questions to ask our guests is to tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance, um, something that stands out um, as a memorable time on stage that you've had. Do, do, does time in the pit count? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, my first season was, was the greatest musical experience of my life. Um, it, was, it was just... This, this perfect combination. I mean, Parsifal, uh, you know, not many people have listened to it, but it is a transformative piece of music. I think, I think it was Debussy who, um, who wrote uh, that after he heard Parsifal for the first time, he cried for two weeks straight and then became a musician. Um, mm. and, and in my, in my first season, uh, we had, the incredible Daniele Gatti conducting, who's now music director of the Concertgebouw. He did Parsifal, all five hours and minutes of it from memory. The cast, uh, Jonas Kaufman, uh, 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 Rene Papa, um, I believe Peter Matei, it was just unbelievable. And the, the music is just out of this world gorgeous. Um, so, I mean, that, that was really, it was really transformative. 
Um, it was, it was a powerful, powerful experience. Um, incidentally, uh, just to, to, to break whatever mood I just established, uh, there was an amazing moment during, during one of the Parsifal performances though. The, uh, the second act of Parsifal in the production that the Met currently has on rotation, um, the second act of it takes place inside uh, the wound of Amfortas, uh, this wound that won't heal. It takes place inside the wound, and the entire stage is flooded with something like 2,000 gallons of fake blood. <gasps> in one performance, we finish act two, so we're about you know four, four and a half hours in, and the orchestra sort of trudges back into the locker rooms, and we go back into the men's locker room, and clearly a leak had sprung somewhere as there was fake blood <laughs> screaming down the wall. And I'm just going to point out that I don't think that happens very often at the Philharmonic. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. Oh, it was wonderful. Clothes? Did you have to go into your street clothes covered in blood? No, it didn't get on to anyone because it was really it was just it was just coming down the walls. Oh. It was it was just a sort of very very horror movie moment. Like Kubrick <laughs> at the Met. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. Um. So you also are a prominent teacher. Um, you teach at Juilliard in Manhattan. Um, do you have any repertoire or resources that stick out in your mind as great teaching tools? Um, yeah, I, I'm a big believer in the, uh, curriculum that, that I went through at Rice, uh, which is heavily etude based. And that, you know, that's not because I love particularly etudes for their own sake, but, you know, we have a lot of etudes as, as bassoonists, and I, I think that it's, I think that, that some of the, the greatest value that a student gets out of studying with a teacher is not necessarily anything that the teacher says to them, but, but just learning what it is to do the work, learning what it is to, to be prepared, and, and to, you know, start at the top left of, of the page and go to the bottom right without stopping with, you know, competence on the, on the instrument. And so, you know, I always, I always work similar to, to my own training, uh, work through, uh, simultaneously sort of technically focused and musically focused etude books. Of course, you can't really draw a line between them because both do both. But, but so, you know, we start on the technical side with Milda scale studies and go to PRs and on from there. On the musical side, start from the Orofici melodic studies, then Kobe Caprices, then Jean Cor, and and going on. But but really, um, I, I find that tremendously valuable, and I find requiring uh, that my students make a certain number of reads per week, uh, aiming for about six reads per week, um, also valuable just because the only way that I know of to learn how to make a read is to make a lot of reads. And I wish there was a shortcut. If anyone has, has one, please tell me. But <laughs> for, for right now, that's, that's sort of what I got.
Um, so, Galit, do you think um, one question each and then close? Um, okay. Um, so, as our most requested bassoon guest, you definitely have a captive audience among our student listeners. Um, so I wonder what advice you would give to young student musicians who aspire to have a career like yours. Work your tail off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whenever, whenever someone asks me some form of do I have what it takes, my answer is always the same. It depends on how hard you're willing to work. Um, and, you know, I, I don't mean this in, in the way of, there's a very, I think is sort of a negative uh, way of looking at this, which is, uh, have, you, have you ever heard the, the, the quote or the saying, you know, just remember when you're not practicing, someone else is, and when mm -hmm. you meet them, they will be, I hate that. <laughs> I just, I think that's such a negative way of, of looking at things. You know, I, I, I saw, um, I saw you, you posted uh, from, from your podcast interview with, with Kristen Wolf Jensen, a wonderful quote of hers, something to the effect of, you know, we're all in this together and, and, you know, the rising tide. All shit's all rising shit. the tide. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's the right way to look at it. That, you know, I'm not coming at this from a competitive standpoint because I, I do think that there's always room for, for quality. The question is, are you willing to put in the work to, to really achieve that, that level of quality? It's, it's really just all about the work. You know, one, one of my favorite quotes in, in regards to music is, the work is all we have. You know, if you if you wake up in the morning and you say, I want to be principal bassoon of the New York Philharmonic. I want principal bassoon of the Metropolitan Opera. Well, if that's if that is your sole reason for getting up in the morning and, and practicing, you're probably going to be disappointed. Mm. If, however, your goal is to be the best musician you can possibly be then that's enough to sustain you through, through a career, through, through a lifetime in music. Because that's, that's still what I wake up every day wanting to do, is to just do better. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's simultaneously thrilling and, and a little bit terrifying that those insecurities you feel as a student, not knowing how you stack up, whether you'll ever be quote unquote good enough, whatever that even means, that they never go away. But I think that if you can find a productive use for them, if you can use those, those feelings, that intense desire to do better, then it, you, it, can, it can fuel your work, it can fuel your, your love and your immersion in music because you know we all just want to do better whether we're a student, whether we're principal bassoon of the Metropolitan Opera. Um, what is your favorite music to listen to? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I really love Renaissance music these days. Uh, things like, like Josquin, 
like Akagan, there's just something so simple and so beautiful and so affecting about it. Um, you know, there's there's a fantastic uh, quartet um, arrangement for, for bassoon quartet of Josquin's Ave Maria that um, some of my colleagues from from my Curtis days and I uh, really love to play. And it's just like it's a, a religious experience. Uh, for me, um, beyond that, the thing that that leaves most readily to mind actually is a band called the Punch Brothers. Do you, do either of you know the the Punch Brothers or Chris Thiele? The the, the oh band? yeah, yes yes yes. Oh, they're incredible. Oh man, the, I mean, so the Punch Brothers themselves are sort of new grass. Um, actually, one of my colleagues from from Curtis, Paul Coward, is is the bassist uh, for 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 Punch Brothers. And, and their sort of front man, Chris Thiele, is one of the great mandolin players of all time, I think. Um, he, I mean, he recorded the Bach um, violin partitas on mandolin. And I remember when I played in the Delaware Symphony, actually, he played his own concerto with us. And as an encore both nights, he played a different movement of, of Bach that was just unbelievable music making. I mean, just his his sense of time, his sense of phrase, his ability to stretch things in an incredibly subtle way is just absolutely inspiring to me. I, I know that's sort of an eclectic pairing to make Joscan and and, <laughs> and and Punch Brothers, but but those are the two that that leap most readily to mind. Well, this has been awesome and inspiring. For our listeners who want to follow up with you after listening to this, where can they find you on the internet? Shortbassoon.com. I respond to emails through my website very promptly, I promise. (laughs) Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We can't thank you enough for your time. I know our listeners are going to be super excited to hear from you. And this was awesome and insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. Uh, You can check us out on social media, and we hope you will. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can also visit our website, doubleredish.com, or visit our YouTube channel, search doubleredish. You can also send us an email with questions, comments, any kind of feedback at doubleredish at gmail.com. And next time, we are very, very excited to present an interview with the one and only Alex Klein, Principal Oboist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Woohoo!